slow down. Yeah, honestly? We're, we're, at a, we're at a Christian retreat, honestly. You listen to the podcast? Um, I'd highly recommend it, um, and I would highly recommend uh, another podcast, which I'll, I'll mention later for, for the way back home, uh, about uh, revival and worship and how that impacts our worship. I think they're both excellent. Um, uh, that video, uh, uh, you're going to get a lot of Keller um, this weekend. Um, I hope you're okay with him. Uh, I like a lot of his writings on this. I think it's, it's very useful. Um, there's, uh, there, there, there are many definitions uh, in that video uh, and things that they talked about, many words uh, that they said, names that they might have mentioned that seem familiar, unfamiliar. Uh, Edward's style of revival, Finney style uh, of revival, and uh, you know we'll, we'll, we'll get to all those. Um, I do have a couple of little uh, PowerPoints that I'll stick up just to, to help those guys taking notes. Um, if you don't have a pen, I did have a bunch of pens at the back there. I think they've gone and ended up where, where um, Catan is over in the corner if you need a pen. Um, we, we are going to be kind of looking at and asking the question, what is revival, getting a biblical uh, and uh, definition of that, looking at it through history, all of that sort of stuff. Um, my guys who went on young adult summer camp, uh, you know that I like long quotes, <laughs> long, long quotes. Uh, you guys who weren't there from the other churches, um, you laugh. <laughs> They were long, let me tell you. Um, but but I, I like context. Um, but uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to look at a couple of these things. And I do have a few quotes that kind of pop up and, and that sort of thing through this. Uh, and you'll just have to kind of bear with me as we go through that. Uh, but, but we are kind of, these are the kind of questions uh, that we are going to be covering uh, as we go through this session. Um, and I've got a lot of content. I, I don't know how much we'll get through um, we'll, we'll see how we go for time and that sort of stuff, uh, but but we'll we'll try and move relatively quickly. So um, uh, yeah, if I if I need to slow down on anything or you want to um, you want me to kind of go back on something, then then just you know let me let me know. Just shout out, it's totally fine. Um, uh, there, there is uh, one biblical definition for for Cole's revival: uh, the sovereign activity of God, whereby He uh, renews His people uh, individually and corporately with vigor, in vigor, affecting both sincerity of belief and quality of behavior. So it affects internal and external uh, part of you. Another definition is quite simple: it's to to make alive, to cause to be enlivened, or to awaken. Quite simple, I like those uh, little simple definitions. If you listen to Keller's podcast, um, he lists three different kind of types or definitions or understandings of revival. The, the frontier revival he talks about, we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, uh, which is a measure of decisions and a measure of numbers. That, that's what revival is. Um, it's a thing that if you work hard enough, you have the right ingredients, revival happens and you get many uh, conversions. That's kind of uh, the idea of frontier revival. The other he calls Pentecostal revival uh, or, or um, uh, miraculous, extraordinary gifts revival, where the gifts of the Spirit are evidenced in speaking in tongues and visions and incredible uh, numerous healings and all the rest of that sort of stuff. Um, and, and, and I guess one of those is on results, the others is on experience, but there is a third way which he kind of talks about. You would have heard him in the podcast, and 
I'll lean pretty heavily on, on that sort of stuff because he is one of the few uh, modern writers to kind of work through this topic with his head kind of screwed on straight. Uh, and, and, and in his book, uh, Center Church, which is a recommended reading, you'll see in your booklets that uh, Mike has put a couple of recommended readings um, to, kind of towards the end of the booklet. Um, I'm going to quote him uh, uh, from, from his book. And, uh, and, and this, this, don't worry guys, this won't be a, this won't be a super long one, we'll, we'll see how we go. I, I didn't do a word count on this quote, but um, that's, that's a short part of the quote. Uh, I couldn't fit the whole thing on the screen, so this is a little brief bit. Um, he talks, he says this, revival isn't a ministry, it's not a ministry, it's not an event, it's the process of the Holy Spirit engaging individuals uh, at their hearts, transforming the church. Uh, the definition of revival is simply the intensification of the normal works, the ordinary works of the Holy Spirit, conviction of sin, regeneration and sanctification and assurance of grace, which come through the ordinary means of grace, preaching the word, prayer and the sacraments. It sounds very ordinary. Uh, during true revival, sleepy Christians wake up. You would have heard him in, in that video. Nominal Christians get converted and non-Christians start exploring the gospel. Personal gospel renewal includes an awareness and conviction of one's own sin. An alienation from God comes from seeing in ourselves deeper layers of self-justification, unbelief, and self-righteousness than we have ever seen before. So there's a new clarity to this, uh, to, to where we stand before God. There is a new uh, commensurate grasp of the wonder of forgiveness and grace as we shed these attitudes and practices and rest in Christ alone for our salvation. Now, perhaps we have previously said that we were resting in Christ's work, not our own work for salvation, but when we experience gospel renewal or revival, we have a new clarity about what this means in our mind and a new experience of what actually of actually doing it with our hearts. Corporate gospel renewal, what has sometimes been called revival, this is still part of the quote, uh, is a season in which a whole body of believers experience personal gospel, uh, gospel renewal together. Over time, all churches, no matter how sound their theology, tend to lose sight of the uniqueness of the gospel and fall into practices that conform uh, more to other religions or to irreligion. Their doctrinal instruction loses sight of how each doctrine plays a role in the gospel message, and their moral instruction is not grounded in and motivated by the finished work of grace in Christ. Without this kind of application of the gospel, mere teaching, preaching, baptizing, and, and discipling are not sufficient. Okay, end quote. That wasn't too bad. Just warming you guys up to the, the next one. Uh, essentially what Kel's picking up on is, is that it's possible for a church and or a Christian to be very active but not be alive. So revival is to experience this life-changing intensification of the normal operations of the Holy Spirit. And so we're going to spend some time in, in, in the Word, we're going to spend some time in history kind of exploring if this is true, trying to uh, recognize uh, and distinguish revival. If, if it were to happen, we, we could uh, pick what it is um, and, and see if it kind of lines up with, with this sort of understanding of revival. Now, these are a bunch of examples in the Word uh, that uh, we see renewal of God's people or revival of God's people. Um, Genesis 35, uh, under Jacob, they return to Bethel. Jacob orders his entire household to put away their false gods, 
to wash and change their garments and they did as Jacob uh, said and they built an altar to the true God and the false gods were then buried under an oak tree. Uh, in 1 Samuel, under Samuel, the, the exhorting of Samuel of the people to again put away their false gods and prepared their hearts to serve the one and only true God. In Exodus with Moses, uh, this occurred when uh, complaining Israel saw the mighty hand of God in the parting of the Red Sea and on the safe side of the sea, uh, you might remember that Moses led the people in a song of praise. Miriam uh, and the women furn uh, you know, furnished this special music and, and, and then they went off towards Sinai and all that sort of stuff. Uh, under David, uh, in 1 Chronicles, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Jerusalem for the first time. There was a great renewal of the people. Uh, in 1 Chronicles 29, the dedication of the materials being used in uh, the building the temple under Solomon, uh, the actual dedication of the temple when they finally got that thing built. Uh, in 1 Kings 15, King Asa, he removed the Sodomites and all false idols, again, all false idols out of the land. He even deposed his own grandmother because of her idolatry. That's some great uh, family, um, you know, Dr. Phil sort of stuff. If you read the book of Second Kings, um, it's pretty serious stuff that goes on in there. It's messed up. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 19 under King Jehoshaphat, the king led a revival where he ordered the cleansing of the temple. That's an interesting one. And the sanctification of the Levitical priests. So they had uh, so uh, brought in the practices of those around them into the temple uh, that it was that they needed to then cleanse the temple to bring uh, about this revival. 1 Kings 18 under Elijah. Uh, this took place after the contest with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. 2 Kings chapter 10, uh, King Jehu, uh, he exterminated all Baal worshippers and their temples. If you read it, it is a mad story. That guy was a bit of a psycho. Uh, Elijah sends, uh, sorry, Elisha sends um, a prophet to go and speak to Jehu and uh, basically he says, go and prophesy, you're going to be king and then run. Like he was, he, was, he was a commander of the army. They were all kind of gathered together for this war council. In comes this prophet, says, uh, you know, I've, I've got a word from the Lord for you. Takes him into this room. Uh, you're going to be king. And then he flees out the door. And everybody, King Jehu comes out and everybody else is like, what just happened, man? I'm going to be king. Oh, great. Let's go kill everybody. It's really crazy. Um, it's really nuts if you read it. Um, Second Kings chapter 11, under Jehoiada. Uh, this, uh, he was a godly high priest. He led the people in a covenant to forsake their idols and worship God. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 29 to 31, we're going to read a little bit of that. That's King Hezekiah. Uh, he experienced revival when he cleansed the temple of God. Second uh, Chronicles 33 under Manasseh, uh, when he, uh, he was wicked to start with, but when he, uh, when he uh, was led in a heart change, uh, he led his people by revival in ordering a destruction of all the idols. Um, 2 Kings 22, 23, uh, Josiah, this revival uh, came, you might know this one, the book of law was accidentally discovered in the temple. Um, sometimes we do this with the Bible, it's very dusty on the shelf and you know it's grandma's or whatever and you read it and oh wow, this is amazing. Um, that's actually an interesting story of how my wife became a Christian was by a Bible that someone gave her brother at a youth group and he never used it and it was in their house gathering dust and she felt like she was at the end of her uh, end of her rope and she really needed God, went and read this Bible and by the end of it she became a Christian. Crazy stuff. Um, under Josiah, the public reading of God's word had a profound effect. 
uh, as it does on both the king and his people. Uh, Ezra chapter 9, under Ezra, uh, Ezra's preaching on separation. The Jewish remnant then ceased their ungodly marriages and alliances with the pagans. That's a crazy story, that one. Uh, Nehemiah chapter 13, Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls around Jerusalem and Ezra stood by the gates and publicly read and taught from the word. Uh, and there was this great revival there. It's a really great story. Uh, Jonah, the Ninevites, uh, you probably know this one, the Jonah's preaching, they repented. Um, Jonah's preaching was pretty uh, lackluster. <laughs> um, but but the, the, the response was incredible. Um, yeah, it was an incredible response. Uh, Jesus uses it as an example in the New Testament. Uh, Esther chapter 9, the, there was a time of repentance and rejoicing at the salvation of the Jews from the, uh, that plot to kill them. Uh, Luke chapter 3, under John the Baptist, John preached the uh, imminent appearance of the Messiah and, and warned people to repent and submit to water baptism. So he had many, many, many followers. Um, or John the Baptizer, if you don't want to think of him as being uh, denominational. Um, John chapter 4, Jesus and the conversion of the Samaritan woman. Uh, This one woman uh, uh, went off and instigated this revival in Samaria. She ran off and told everybody, look, come and meet this this guy who told me everything that I'd ever done. Uh, It was pretty incredible. Uh, uh, quite a renewal there under um, Philip in Acts chapter 8, this preaching of Philip uh, concerning the kingdom of God. He preached and produced a great revival in Samaria. Uh, We'll read a little bit about uh, that one. Um, uh, Under Peter at Pentecost, um, he had this great sermon. I hope you all know it. Uh, Acts chapter 9, again, uh, uh, at Lydia, after he had healed Aeneas, there was some revival and renewal. Uh, and then uh, Acts 18 for under Paul, uh, one of the great revivals in Ephesus during Paul's missionary journey. And it's a really good account to read, um, to, to follow and, and to kind of pick up on sort of the different things that happen in a revival. Um, we will read a little bit of that one, actually. Um, what I want to do is I'll get you to turn uh, in the Word uh, if you brought a Bible with you, um, if you have a digital uh, Bible on your phone, you can flick that open to Second Chronicles chapter 29. Um, and we're going to read some kind of like an Old Testament example. We're going to read a New Testament example. Uh, and we're just going to pick up on some similarities and differences. I'm not going to kind of highlight them for you. I'd like you to kind of think through uh, the differences as we go through these together. Um, the obvious difference in the New Testament being the preaching of the gospel. Um, quite, quite different, but in, in the Old Testament, uh, a very interesting thing happened. Uh, so let me bring up. Second uh, Chronicles 29. Yeah, this is King Hezekiah. Um, I don't have it up on the screen. Um, here we go. Second Chronicles chapter 29, verse 1. Hezekiah began to reign when he was 25 years old. Who here is 25? One person. Great. So that's the age that King Hezekiah was when he became king of all the land. No pressure. <laughs> And he reigned, he, he reigned for 29 years in Jerusalem. Uh, his mother's name was Abijah, the daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David his father had done. That could not been, have been said of me when I was 25. Uh, in the first year of his reign, in the first month, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. It's a good start. 
He brought in the priests and the Levites and assembled them in the square on the east and said, Hear me, Levites, now consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Carry out the filth from the holy place. That is how far in it got into the temple. Uh, For our fathers have been unfaithful and done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. They have forsaken him and have turned away their faces from the habitation of the Lord and turned their backs. We're going to talk about repentance later on today. Uh, They also shut the doors of the vestibule and put out the lamps that have not uh, burnt incense or offering, burnt offerings in the holy place uh, to the God of Israel. Therefore, verse 8, the wrath of the Lord came on Judah and Jerusalem and he has made them an object of horror, of astonishment and of hissing as you see with your own eyes. If you wonder about the way the world is going. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, and our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity for this. Now it is in my heart to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, in order that his fierce anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not now be negligent, for the Lord has chosen you to stand in his presence, to minister to him, and to be his ministers, and to make offerings to him. Then the Levites arose, and there's a bunch of names, I won't read all them the sons of so-and-so and and -and so-and-so. Verse 15, they gathered their brothers and consecrated themselves and went in as the king had commanded by the words of the Lord to cleanse the house of the Lord. So the priests went in to the inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it and they brought out all the uncleanliness that they found in the temple of the Lord into the court of the house of the Lord and Levites took it and carried it out to the brook Kidron. You find the Brook Kidron uh, separates uh, the, the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. It was a place where they took a lot of, uh, when they had revival and renewal quite a number of times, they would take uh, their idols out there and, and smash them up and burn them to dust and ashes and trample on them into the ground. It was a, it was a bit of a place to do that sort of thing. Uh, verse 17, they began to conse- consecrate on the first day of the first month and on the eighth day of the month they came to the vestibule of the Lord. Then for eight days they consecrated the house of the Lord. And on the 16th day of the first month, they finished. Then they went in to Hezekiah and said, We have cleansed all of the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, the table uh, for the showbread and all its utensils, all the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless. We have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord. Verse 20, Then Hezekiah the king rose early, it's like this morning. I gathered the officials of the city, went up to the house of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven lambs, seven male goats for a sin offering for the kingdom, for the sanctuary, and for Judah. And he commanded the priests, the sons of Aaron, to offer them on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls. The priests received the blood, threw it against the altar. They slaughtered the rams, uh, so on. The same thing sort of happened. Uh, Verse 25, and he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, lyres, according to the commandment of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Nathan the prophet, for the commandment was from the Lord through his prophets. The Levites stood with the instruments of David and the priests with trumpets. Then there's no guitars in there. Uh, then, then there's lyres, but you know. Uh, then Hezekiah commanded that the burnt offerings be offered on the altar, and when the burnt offerings began, The song of the Lord, the song to the Lord, sorry, began also. And the trumpets, very holy items, accompanied by the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly worshipped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded, and all this continued until the burnt offering was finished. And when the offering was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshipped. It's a great story. 
And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. Um, They sang praises with gladness and they bowed down and worshipped. Then Hezekiah said, you have now consecrated yourselves, so they did the temple first, now yourselves, to the Lord, come near. Bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the house of the Lord. And the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all who were of willing heart brought burnt offerings. And the number of the burnt offerings, the assembled to the Lord was 70 bulls, 100 rams, 200 lambs. Uh, for this was all a burnt offering. It would have smelt great. It's an awesome barbecue. Uh, they consecrated uh, 600 bulls, 3,000 sheep. I hope no one's here is vegan. Uh, but the priests were too few. They could not flay all the burnt offerings. So until other priests had consecrated themselves, their brothers, the Levites, helped them until the work was finished. For the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, tasty stuff. There were uh, the drink offerings for the burnt offerings and the service of the house of the Lord was restored. And Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced because God had provided for the people. And the thing came about suddenly, okay? So you're kind of picking up on a few things happening through here. Uh, What then happens in verse 30? I won't read the whole thing, but uh, Hezekiah sends out a letter then. It it, it overflows from being as a part of Judah, from from the temple to the the people. He, He sends out a letter to all Israel, so the northern tribes, They'd split with, if you know the story, that they, they, they weren't great neighbors. Uh, and he wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, the tribes, and they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover. Uh, so the king and all the princes, the assembly, they, so they all go and, uh, and, and ask them to you know, come and do it um, because they had not kept the Passover for a long while. Uh, and verse 4, the plan seemed right to the king and all the assembly. So the, all the people said, like, yeah, let's do this. This is something we should restore we should we should go back and start doing these things again that God has commanded us to do Uh, and then they sent out all these letters and the the letters said this verse 6 in chapter 30 uh, O people of Israel this is their neighbors return to the Lord the God of Abraham Isaac and Israel that he may turn again to the remnant of you who have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. If you know the story, Assyria decimated much of northern Israel. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who were faithless to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them a a desolation as you see. This is a rebuke. Do not now be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and come to his sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. And serve the Lord your God, that his fierce anger may turn away from you. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. It's a great promise. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. That is a key word that occurs all the way through the Old Testament. He is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. God constantly calls his people to return to him. So the couriers went out, and you find this in verse 10, 2 Chronicles 30, verse 10. The couriers went out to the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed. They laughed and scorned and mocked them. They'd just been through some desolating stuff with Assyria coming in and destroying their land and they've been called by the king from down south to come back to the temple 
and they said, no thanks. However, some men of Asher and Manasseh and Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. And the hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. And the story goes on. Uh, and it's, it's, you know, some great revival. Hezekiah speaks this encouragement. Uh, there's, there's again, uh, this time I think there's uh, 7,000 sheep for burnt offerings. The princes gave the assembly 1,000 bulls, 10,000 sheep. There's a, there, there's a big barbecue happening. Uh, and the priests consecrate themselves in great numbers. There's this huge revival, huge revival that happens. It's a great time. Um, what we're then now going to do is compare it. Uh, to uh, Acts chapter 18, uh, when Paul, so verse 24, chapter 18, verse 24, when Paul uh, goes to Ephesus, let me bring this up. And I'm going to start where Apollos, if you know him, he, uh, he turns up in Ephesus. Acts chapter 18, verse 24, says this, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. It's key, it's good, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, discipled him, explained to him the way of the God more accurately. This is good. We need this, all of us. Uh, and when he wished to cross to Acacia, the brothers encouraged him, wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Acts chapter 19, and it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country, came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, small seeds, we don't measure by numbers because it grows very quickly. Verse 8, he entered the synagogues and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, uh, similar to what happened to the king they got laughed at, uh, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greek. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Uh, it's not COVID safe. Okay. God's very counterculture. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. They wanted a copy over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Lord, by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. And seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? 
And the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them. So they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them. The name of the Lord Jesus was then extolled. And many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burnt them in the sight of them all. It's public repentance. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's good stuff. Um, so I hope you can pick up, there's a couple of, little, there's a couple of similarities, a couple of differences. Um, two, there's, they're, they're clearly different types of stories, um, but there's a lot of interesting things that happen on in there. Um, but it's worthwhile having those two uh, to compare for yourself. We won't really kind of unpack that right now. Um, but I do want to uh, uh, talk about like, like this, this big list we have. Keller, uh, again, he kind of gives um, a helpful analysis of the different type of biblical revivals we see, and, and, and we won't spend long on them. Uh, uh, you can go and read the book and, and get all the details through that. But he kind of talks about um, revival and, uh, and spiritual forgetting, so Israel constantly forgetting, uh, the great salvation of the Exodus, and Paul, uh, sorry, Peter warns Christians not to lose the reality of being cleansed from their former sins, so not to be forgetful. Uh, revelation is, is you, have for, you have forgotten your first love. Um, it, so it can happen to us. It's the very same. Uh, revival and cycles of decline. So judges, kings, chronicles, uh, these, these cycles of decline that happen when God's people want to be like their neighbors. They don't want to stand out. They want to be just like the, the other guys. And, and it declines so much that, that they get to the point where they don't look any different to those around them. They don't stand out. They actually behave worse than the pagans who have no belief in God that God drove out of the land. Uh, it's, it's terrible the, the, the way in which idolatry enters into the temple and they, they do even worse things uh, than, than uh, what happened uh, for, to the Canaanites before. Uh, revival and the Spirit... Uh, pops up in the, in the biblical examples, which is God's response to prayer and persecutions to send his spirit to revive. So they, they, they're filled with the spirit. They overflow into boldness of living and of preaching. Uh, and it brings about many uh, conversions, uh, revival, and the inner reality, which is highly experiential. Uh, the truth impacts our hearts with assurance and power, uh, makes people effective ambassadors. They're, they're, um, uh, the spirit fills them within and, and gives them this great assurance. Revival and conversion. So uh, it's not just a renewal of true Christians become uh, coming alive. Uh, it does seem to start with them, but it includes the conversion of people who are Jesus followers in label, but not in life. They are nominal Christians who are in the church. They sing the songs. They do the things, uh, but they remain untransformed and divided in heart, mind, soul, and strength. The revival captures them with the gospel to recognize, even though they may have been baptized, they may have done the things, gone to Sunday school, they know uh, a couple of references in the words or whatever, uh, their hearts were still not right before God. They need, uh, they're in need of conversion. And, and we see, uh, I'll give an example of that uh, in the later session in Acts. Uh, now on to historical examples. So that's all the biblical ones. Uh, historical examples. Uh, we're not going to go through all these. Um, that's, that's not even the whole list. There's, there's a whole lot more. Uh, but these are the ones you may have heard um, uh, may have heard of. We're just going to pick up on, on uh, just a couple of key ones. The first great awakening. 
uh, that gave us Jonathan Edwards' kind of intellectual analysis of revival. Um, it included the work of the Wesleys, of Whitfield, and of Edwards. And when you look at these and you think, how can we capture this uh, and, and, and get something like this again? It seems to be a mover and a shaker uh, for a revival, pun intended, if you know your history. Uh, you need to have a W in your name, Edwards, W, Wesleys, Whitfield. Uh, so I'm out. <laughs> That's my excuse. <laughs> Mike, you're fine. <laughs> you're good to go, mate. You got a W. You got a W. You got you got you got you got the tick. Uh, uh, Wesley, Whitfield, Edwards, they all had different methods, uh, but they all believed that God must do the work, that, that man cannot save himself. Uh, in 1734, Edwards preached just a regular sermon in a regular service. The response he got was not regular. Uh, it was extraordinary, and he wrote, uh, quote, uh, All seem to be seized with a deep concern about their eternal salvation. All the talk is upon the things of religion, and the effect was widespread. The rich and poor, the high and low. The wise and unwise, the young and old were affected by it. There were dozens and eventually hundreds who were brought to a lively sense of the excellency of Jesus Christ and his sufficiency and his willingness to save sinners and to be much weaned in their affections from the world. Being weaned in their affections from the world, I think is a great, great phrase. Edwards, uh, if, you, if you know um, history, you know a little bit about Edwards, he was a terribly dull and dry preacher. He, he, he was, he would speak monotonously, uh, he would read directly from his notes, he would barely look up and he would read like this, now David fled and escaped and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him and he and Samuel went and lived at Naoth and it was told, it was, it was not... Uh, in, in, the, in, in the exciting kind of uh, way that you would think of what a sermon uh, should be. Um, and, and what it shows is that um, it, doesn't, it doesn't really, you know, you can really pick up on Paul's words when he talks to the Corinthians. Is I, I didn't come with, with, in speaking with elegant and fluency like the orators in their great speech and their great presentation, came with weakness and trembling. Uh, God still does a great work. So if you're not a great speaker, there you go. God still does a great work. Uh, Malachi Tresler has said this, Edwards had to encourage people in his sermons not to fall asleep during the service. Reason, to set a good example for those who were there visiting. <laughs> so it must have happened pretty regularly. <laughs> um, but he... Malachi Tresler goes on, he says, but Whitfield was different. Whitfield was a traveling preacher. He didn't really attach himself to any particular local church. Uh, he traveled all up and down the east coast of America, and sometimes you'd be able to gather as many as twenty to 30,000 people <clears throat> to hear him preach his open-air sermons from all sorts of different denominations, different churches, and he was a natural-born actor. He was very theatrical. The story is that he could make people weep just by the way that he pronounced the word Mesopotamia. <laughs> that's, that's some good acting. <clears throat> uh, not long after this, uh, you then have Wesley uh, leading a revival, revival movement within the Church of England, known as Methodism. Uh, he and his brother, they were highly influential in the Great Awakening. Wesley felt that the church had catastrophic catastrophically failed in rebuking or calling sinners to repentance. Uh, he believed many of the clergy were given to corruption 
and that people were perishing in their sins. So he was overwhelmed with his sense of holy discontent. And the centrality of scripture for Wesley was so important, he was known to have called himself a man of one book. It was this, he was, he was very well read um, and, and well educated, but the man of one book is how he was known. The British responded to the message of salvation by faith alone and the power of Christ was then seen in their lives. It revived their faith. Uh, subsequently, growth followed such that the Methodist Church became one of the largest denominations in the 19th century. It's a pretty amazing result. Uh, but with all of the Great Awakening, uh, the First Great Awakening, not all was hunky-dory. There was a lot more to the stories. We sadly don't have, we don't have time to go into here. Um, but <clears throat> Edwards experienced a whole bunch of excess in the revivals that, that many um, uh, concerned reverends from different churches were uh, rejected what was going on. They were, they were uh, basically saying it was the devil's work, it's not a true work of God, and so on and so forth. So Edward wrote a whole bunch of uh, stuff to analyze and work through. And that's, that's why a lot of people uh, refer to him when you talk about revivals, because he wrote so much on it. It's hard to read because the English is very uh, Shakespearean and clunky compared to kind of the way we write things in, in a modern way. Uh, but it's worth the difficulty of going through the stuff that he has written. It's excellent. Um, basically, there's, there were many fakes uh, amongst the flock, which is very true. Um, you know, there was people thrashing about. They were falling over. They were rolling around laughing and all of that. And Edwards, being the man that he was, he analytically uh, went through this and wrote how someone could discern a true work uh, of the spirit uh, versus the, the counterfeit work of the devil and, and, and try to understand those two things. Um, and, and he wrote this, that there were some counterfeits is no argument that nothing is true. Such things are always expected in a time of reformation. If we look into church history, we shall find no instance of any great revival of religion but what has been attended to with many such things. He's basically saying that any time there's a great revival of religion, counterfeits are going to follow. Satan's going to want to get on board and basically derail the train. That's, that's what he does. Um, he clothes himself, cloaks himself as an angel of light. Uh, much was written to discern and defend kind of the happenings that went on in the First Great Awakening by Edwards. Um, I highly recommend you, you search it out and read it for yourself. Um, he's written a thing called A Faithful Narrative, um, which uh, is, is completely free to get on the internet. Um, if you want some more resources, we can talk about that later. Uh, moving on to the General Awakening. Uh, so we're just going to focus on these two, the, the, the First Great Awakening, the General Awakening. Uh, that's when we find the beginnings of a different type of revival known as revivalism. Charles Finney, he was a big name at that time. Uh, the two old blokes kind of chatting in the video at the start, they mentioned Finney. Uh, he he uh, really changed the way that America did church, did worship, did preaching. Um, he was a legal practitioner, uh, did a couple other things, uh, but he was dramatically converted. He quickly went on to preach the gospel uh, everywhere he could. Um, when he was younger, he attended a New York Baptist church, uh, good old Baptist, where the preacher was known for emotional revival-styled meetings meant to elicit emotions uh, and, and crisis moments of faith. So this was his formation. Uh, Finney attracted big numbers for a while. Um, he, he took things uh, to extremes in the way that he would, uh, new methods he kind of talked about with innovations he brought in. Um, he thought we could basically scientifically copy-paste revival uh, by, by getting the right ingredients. It's kind of like the Betty Crocker method. If you have everything right, you bake this, the same cake. Um, he taught that it wasn't a miracle. Uh, it was a work that could be achieved. 
and then measured by the amount of decisions that you got. So revival wasn't really measured by the work of God in the church. It was measured by how many decisions you got. Uh, and unfortunately, a lot of those decisions weren't discipled, so they, many uh, fell away. It was highly pragmatic. Uh, the more decisions you got, the better. He would say, if you get more decisions, then, then your method's better than mine. But if I get more decisions, uh, my method's the way to go. Um, basically did away with church formation in community and family, which was the traditional way to disciple. Uh, instead, it kind of fixated on this season of crisis, became, faith became very individual, uh, and it's impacted the way in which uh, we live today uh, in our individualism. Uh, revival was something to him that we, we, not, we don't cultivate, we create. Uh, there was little emphasis on sound doctrine and church community as God's people. There was a lot of emphasis on individualistic, personal experience. Uh, over time, his methods, his new methods waned, the excitement kind of fell off, so he looked back at the first Great Awakening, the examples there, to reinvent, to innovate, to recreate the same ingredients once again. Uh, people kind of became bored with the same taste, uh, so they needed something new, so he started bringing in singing evangelists um, and comedians and other entertainers. Um, this was an early seeker-sensitive movement. Um, and it was experience-driven. And the thing with experience-driven uh, uh, worship or experience-driven revival, who's the central figure? You, us, the people who are hearing it. We, we are the central figure so to, because it's about drawing the numbers. So it wasn't God. It wasn't uh, you know, God's people. It was the people, the seekers who needed to be kept interested. That was the, the motivating factor there. And it was all sadly very, well, probably good, very short-lived. Uh, and, and these um, scheduled, planned, programmed revivals, they all ran out of steam because it was man-centric. It was man-driven. It was works-based. It was anti-church, completely devoid of sound theological foundations. If you look at Finney's uh, systematic theology, um, actually don't, unless you want to read into a bunch of heresies. Um, yeah, read them. You, you'll, you'll agree with me. Um, revivalism as a concept, it basically started with Finney. Okay, others were taking part at the time. It, was, it was, wasn't just him, but Finney's kind of that key contributor, Charles Finney. And as a result of his influence, revivals were then measured by how many decisions were made. Um, so revivalism. Revivalism is this experience-centered, feelings-driven outbursts uh, of mass religious fervor. It's stimulated by intensive preaching and prayer meetings. It's lacking church community and transformation, but instead it's fixated on capturing decisions for Christ. So converts make decisions, but they're only skin deep. And they, they last about as long as the feelings from the last song kind of linger. And then enthusiasm quickly wanes and there's no discipleship journey or, or this lifelong adventure in the gospel together or transformation in Christian community. It's kind of like, I need that hype. Uh, I need to go to the camp revival. I need to get the next spiritual high. High to high to high to high. Uh, and it wears people out. And the thing is, uh, what was found in all of this was feeling, feelings can be forced. Um, you know, uh, as time went on, it was found, it was rarely a matter of faith with this. Feelings are fickle things. Um, faith cannot be forced. Um, there's a historian named John Coffey. Uh, it's a great last name. And he notes that revivalism historically encouraged exchanging robust theological confessionalism for a doctrinal minimalism. So, do out with the heavy stuff, uh, in, in with just the simple stuff. 
he stressed heart experience over formal churchmanship. D emphasized sacramental routine for crisis decisions. Downgraded the ideal of a learned ministry for populist simplistic preaching. And shed careful theological exegesis in light of the wisdom of the past for naive biblicism. Out of the revivals of the past has come the individualistic piety of the present day. Some pretty strong words. Um, how can we tell what rev true revival looks like? I hope we're kind of picking up on a few pictures um, going through all of this, uh, and I'll need to keep moving pretty quick now. Um, for, for my own experience, um, I would say I was a sleepy Christian. Um, I thought nothing of it. Uh, no one had challenged me, no one rebuked me about this until kind of God rolled up his sleeves, got to work on this shy, sinful, socially awkward kid um, who was spiritually destitute, who um, had a very poor and shallow understanding of the word, even though I'd grown up in a Christian family, gone to church for a long time. Uh, and, and, you know, I had very little growth in the grace or the knowledge of God uh, until I read a book called The Slumber of Christianity by Ted Decker. Um, now, I probably wouldn't recommend that book <laughs> as a resource, um, but it was quite formational for me, challenging for me. Uh, I also read Porn Again Christian by Mark Driscoll, uh, also quite challenging, uh, and The Cross of Christ by John Stott. These were three uh, quite significantly formational books for myself. Uh, the one I would highly recommend was the, is The Cross of Christ. And as I moved through these, there was, for my own, looking at my own personal uh, renewal, there was a deep conviction of sin and repentance uh, and the cross of Christ, in fact, um, led me to, to tears as I read, as he unpacked the way that he who knew no sin became sin for us, my sin, so that I could receive his righteousness. Um, and and it, I, I kind of, uh, God did this kind of work in me. I remember, I, I can picture the scene actually of when I was sitting in my room reading uh, that page. It was um, powerful. Uh, but corporate revival, if you remember, is where many experience this kind of personal renewal. Um, and, and, and if we want to learn what true revival looks like, and we, we see kind of this, uh, the, the, this experience as a corporate thing. Uh, again, um, sort of leaning on Tim Keller, he gives us a couple of theological marks um, there of revival. Uh, revival recovers the gospel from either legalism or licentiousness, so law and no law, so extreme uh, uh, opposite ends of the spectrum there. Um, I can do whatever I want um, because I'm now saved and I live in grace, so it doesn't really matter how I live, or uh, I need to work to earn the grace, um, to uh, earn the righteousness. Um, there's two very different extremes of, of uh, abuse of the gospel there. Uh, revival prompts deep repentance and awe. Um, Zechariah 1.3 um, is this great sense of return to me. Again, if you remember, I mentioned before, God calls us to return and we return uh, to him and he returns to us. Uh, revival creates anointed corporate worship in the church. Uh, that one's pretty self-explanatory. Um, it's... Uh, great work of the Spirit in His people as they unite and sing praise and encourage and build one another up. Um, revival number four, revival grows the local church body. Uh, church becomes this attractive thing that overflows. It's beautiful when God's people are seeking Him first uh, to, to others and, and uh, it's a wonderful thing. Um, revival encourages extraordinary prayer uh, and that's not just praying um, 
for my needs, myself. Um, I need, God, I've got an exam. I need your help. Um, this is extraordinary prayer beyond ourselves for the kingdom um, in, in a really powerful way. Uh, one thing I would add, I feel that Tim Keller has kind of missed in this little um, summary, in that summary podcast, if you read the summary podcast, of some of the things that were going on, uh, the connections with the revivals. I've got a quote, uh, it's quite long in the booklet. I won't read it, but he, he includes a, a, a thing about creativity at the bottom, cre- uh, creativity in revivals, um, and, and that God often like works through a new method, a uh, new thing that comes along. Uh, not always, and you know, he talks about you can't get into Narnia the same way twice. Uh, God doesn't have a formula for the way he does things, but he often does use new things. Um, for the Reformation, it was kind of like the printing press uh, came along and, and the way the gospel spread through that. Um, for Jonathan Edwards, there was this move, this, this big thing called the hymn controversy, the different way that they sung things uh, going on. Um, the, the way in which they sung, if you think singing at your church is bad or churches that you've been to in the past is bad, okay, um, in America at the time, they had this, this book of the Psalms, they would only sing Psalms. Um, the Puritans and, uh, and all across America. It was the done thing. You sing the Psalms. That's it. Nothing else uh, is fit for, for worship in God's church. You might sing occasional hymns at home, but you don't sing any hymns in church. You sing scripture, full stop, word for word. Um, and uh, the ability of singing in the congregation would drop uh, over the years, and it got quite terrible uh, that they cut out a lot of the songs in their psalm book, and it just started to reduce down. And I think in the end, they went from having uh, the Bay Psalms book or something it was called. It had like a, a hundred and something at the start, uh, different melodies to, to psalms, and then uh, by the end, it was down to like 20 to 30 um, because their ability to sing just kind of really dropped right off. So they had this thing called singing schools, that they started to try and teach people to sing. Okay, so it was bad. I want to read to you a quote, it's short, um, <laughs> from a guy called Reverend Thomas Walter. Uh, he lived around 1696 to, to 1725. That's not a very long life, but it's long enough to complain about this. He said, There was no harmonious nor united song unto the Lord, but rather a torturous, horrid, medley of confused and disorderly noises yeah (laughs) it was bad it was really bad and uh the the bringing in isaac watts hymns kind of kind of encouraged this this new uh revival to loving the lord with all your heart as well as your mind and strength and soul. And, and uh, the, the, they invigorated their singing. Everyone was getting in on the, the singing schools. They really enjoyed it. Community was growing and they would start to sing in church. And the hymns kind of really accompanied uh, a lot of the revivals. George Whitfield uh, preferred to close his open air preaching services with a hymn because people would be really getting into it. Um, and the thing is, like, yeah, we can't force the feelings. Uh, it doesn't matter about the songs that you sing, really. But songs do carry theology, and they do influence our theology, even the songs that have no theology at all in them, and we might sing them in church. That can still impact our theology. Um, Queensland Baptists, uh, when I did a study on this, they, they wanted to recreate the vineyard-type revivals that happened uh, Queensland, uh, not just Queensland Baptists, but Baptists typically have a, have a history of, of, of loving the tent revivals. We love that kind of idea, and, and you can thank Baptists for the rise of the worship leader as a professional uh, aspect in a church. That's our contribution, apparently, to, to the, the historical church. Um, 
and and um, it, it was it was kind of we we moved away from from singing deep theological songs to singing very emotional songs to move uh, that the Isaac Watts hymns were paraphrases of scripture so they were uh, quite rooted in the word um, but as they the generations went on it kind of tended to move away from that more and more um, and uh, the Baptists kind of like we took we saw this great formula in the vineyard uh, revivals and we said it must be the songs that they're singing let's grab those we'll sing them in our churches uh, and you know how that goes sometimes when a church will grab a song that does not fit the congregation and they will try to sing it and it goes really bad. Um, anyone tried Build Your Kingdom? <laughs> it's, it's very Irish folksy, Wren Collective, Build Your Kingdom uh, and, and it kind of took off for a while um, and uh, I, I brought it into a church which was um, very conservative, uh, organy style uh, and, and, it, and man... <laughs> It was a flop. Um, it, it, it was not the start for the church. But, but uh, what, we, what we've typically done as Baptists through the 80s, we grabbed the, these vineyard songs and we thought, we're going to use these and we're going to bring about revival because of these songs. And the result was that we actually brought in all of these songs that have this theolo- theology in them that we didn't actually agree with. And it watered down the theology of the church, and you, you found a lot of Baptists were typically very strict Calvinists uh, and, and, and um, good uh, sound understanding of the word. Uh, and, and what they found was there was a big move to Arminianism. Um, that debates for something different, but um, there was a great move away from, from understanding of the word. Theology was really lost. Uh, people had a very basic sense then of the Bible and of God um, because all of their theology they learnt from their songs. Uh, they weren't reading the words, so, so they're kind of like this, this decay on decline uh, because of the songs that we brought in, trying to copycat this revival method. Uh, so can we create revival? No, we can't create it. Um, uh, it, it, it does kind of depend on your understanding of revival. If you have that kind of um, frontier revival, Keller calls it Betty Crocker revival. It's kind of the, the spin I like on it. If you have the right ingredients and work hard enough, yeah, you can recreate that. But I don't really think it's true revival. Um, there's another kind of concept of, of um, an inability in, in revival. You do nothing but pray. That's it. Can't do anything. <clears throat> There is a third way, which is Keller's, and I, I agree with it, I like it. Um, and and Keller, Tim Keller says, to pursue the theological marks of revival. So, so he would say, pursue these. Uh, pursue them, and then it's up to God, and, and he will bring the revival. Um, but, but we can still pursue these. Uh, and, and in a sense, it's you know, just like a farmer doesn't bring the rain, but at the same time, the farmer doesn't just sit on his hands and do nothing. He, he, he doesn't sit idle in a drought. He prepares the soil. He plans. He plows the fields. He plants the seeds. And then he prays. Especially if you know anything about farming. Pray. <laughs> uh, there's, there's a great quote. Again, it is short. Um, Ray Ortland um, has said this. Uh, if, oh, no, that's broken. I'm just going to read it. Uh, he says, we cannot trigger... A divine visitation on our churches. We cannot trigger a divine visitation on our churches. But it is our responsibility to prayerfully offer the Lord a church steeped in the gospel and tenderly responsive to His presence. His Spirit's blessing should not, get this, His Spirit's blessing should not have to work against 
the logic and the ethos we create. The Spirit should not have to work against what is going on in the church and the way that we live our lives. And we won't, we'll, we'll talk more about this in, in the session later tonight, but I want to challenge you now personally, uh, not corporately, but personally, because um, I don't want you to criticize your church for what they're doing, and you might think, oh, they're working against the church in the way that the youth is run. Terrible youth pastor, I know. Um, but I want you to think personally, for your own life, are you steeped in the gospel? Is your life one that hinders the Spirit? That if you would sit there and you could see the Spirit at work, does He have to work against you? Because you're constantly running after distractions and chasing after the, the idols and the false gods and He has to keep pulling you back by the collar and saying, this is the way to go. This is the good way. Because we know that can happen. There's, uh, we know that, can that the, the, the we in the way that we live can hinder our prayers, as an example in First Peter, guys who are here who are married, husbands, your prayers will or will not be hindered by the way in which you treat, honor, and love your wife. This is how much God cares about what happens in the home. So He cares very much that we are not just a, a you know a hypocritical people who say one thing, do another. He cares about what we do in the privacy of our home. He cares about what goes on in our heart and our mind. He's intensely, intensely interested in the manner in which we live and how we live out our faith can affect our prayers. So if you're praying for revival, and I hope you are, then also there is work that we can do in our lives to contribute and walk towards that so that we are in the position to have our hands to receive that when it comes with joy. Um, is there a particular method for revival? <clears throat> no. Um, you can't force the feelings, as we said. Uh, faith faith uh, waits upon the Lord, but it's an active waiting. Uh, like a watcher in the night, you'll see uh, called out in a, in a lot of the, the Old Testament, a watcher in the night. Uh, Elijah built the altar. Those guys referenced at the front. Uh, Elijah built the altar, and then he prayed. He built the altar, and then he prayed. And the Lord brought the fire down. So we can't create revival, but we can contribute to it, purifying the altar and the temple making sure that the stones that we offer are holy and are cleansed by the blood of Christ, not by our works. Living as Christ has declared us to be and He wants us to be, this is God's will for your life, to live holy and godly lives. Now, I remember when I was uh, a young adult, <laughs> um, I, I had a lot of this confusion. What's God's will for my life? What's He want me to do here, here, and here? Um, and it doesn't work that way. God has a much bigger vision for your life. And, and a lot of the time you say, what is God's will for my life? And I would point you to Second uh, Peter chapter 3, where he says, you know how the end is going to happen. I've told you, it happens. he talks about it. And since you know these things, in what way should you live? Holy and godly lives. Holy and godly lives. And, and that pops up through Paul's letters as well. Holy and godly lives. It, it's, it's the same thing that happens through. So it doesn't matter about all the little bits of your life. It's this big, big driving factor. Is this holy? Is this godly? That is how you discern the way in which you live and how we can prepare and anticipate and pray for uh, revival so that it comes. So what, what can we do? What can we do? Uh, my things stopped working again. Um, we'll have to probably reset that. Can someone flick this TV back on and off again? We'll get that up. Um, what can we do? Uh, we can't manufacture revivals. We can't program revivals. But we can pray for it. 
Uh, I'm going to use um, a Baptist preaching method that everybody loves, a lot of alliteration. We can pray for it. We can position ourselves for it to receive refreshing uh, and daily repentance from sin, thoroughly engaging in our pursuit of God, a lot of peas. We can prepare for it. Okay, so pray for it, position ourselves, uh, pursue God, prepare for it in equipping ourselves theologically, spiritually, gracefully. And finally, we can praise God for it when it comes. When it comes, when He brings it. Uh, Keller says, pursue the theological marks of the revival. It's up to God whether or not He decides to bring it. But even if God doesn't bring it, even if God doesn't bring it, what is lost in pursuing the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit and living holy and godly lives such that we love the Lord truly, undividedly, with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. What is lost in doing that? Nothing. Nothing of value. In fact, what is gained is priceless. And even more so, if the Lord in His grace sends revival, hallelujah. So, I'm going to finish there because we're going to run out of time. But uh, I think we got maybe um, like two minutes for quick Q&A. Um, I did go through a lot of stuff really quick. Um, while you're thinking about questions, uh, in addition to the excellent resources that, that, that Mikey's put in the book, uh, recommended reading, um, which are the go-to. I bought a bunch of books. I left them in my car. I'll go grab them later, uh, which I can uh, I would, I would commend to you to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, as uh, Peter calls us to and Paul calls us to. Uh, and if you think about this, um, I want to encourage you, if Peter could go from a fisherman to an apostle who wrote books of the Bible by the power of God, if you think you are not a reader, <laughs> then I think you should grow and learn in that because readers are leaders and God can do a great work in you if you grow in the knowledge of God. And, and we, we take that all in by growing in His Word and being widely read as well uh, so that we can speak the Gospel accurately and, and clearly to uh, the world around us. Um, so, questions? Any questions? If you don't have questions, we, we do have time for it. We're going to continue in, in a response in a song. No questions? Awesome. Great. Cool. Um, is that working? Uh, yeah, it's plugged in. Oh, it's on blank. That might be why. That's... Hey! <laughs> oh, it's a black screen. Why is there nothing coming up? All right, there's, there's, that, there's that last one. Um, cool. All right, well, I'll hand back to the guys. We're going to respond in song. Great. Let's worship. <laughs>